This is a podcast from Real Life Sango in Clarksville, Tennessee. Thank you for being a part of our online community. We would love for you to join us at 8.30 or 10 a.m. on Sunday morning at the City Forum. In the meantime, if you would like to share a prayer request, make a financial contribution, or take a step at Real Life, you can text MISSION to 97000. Now enjoy the podcast. All right, this morning we, we want to lift a prayer up. Freddie T is actually, was going to be here today. He is out. He's battling um, one of these bugs that's going around like it is going through our church like crazy. So we want to lift him up this morning as he is resting and recovering. So let's, let's open up in a word of prayer as we get going this morning. Uh, Father, we thank you for uh, meeting us here and it, it's so great to worship you in spirit and in truth and a season where we get to celebrate the true king that you came and uh, became the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And uh, so Father, we celebrate you today and Father, we uh, bring before you um, so much of what's going on in our um, area right now with the, the sickness that's happening. We wanna lift up specifically Freddie T, pray that you would just heal his body, give him the rest that he needs. And so, Father, again, we just uh, thank you for this season. It's a rush, and we pray that we would be able to, um, to slow down enough to see you in the rush, to see you in those um, moments of what you're doing around us, and we want to join you in that work. So, Father, as we dive into your word this morning, guide us. We love you. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. And all God's people said, amen, amen. amen. All right, we are... One week out, I don't know if that like freaks you out and you're like thinking about like all the people that you didn't get a gift for yet, all right? So no Amazon shopping, all right, on your phone during the message. We're gonna do something, I, I think a little bit fun today. We're, we're gonna look at a passage that was already read in part earlier, Luke chapter two, uh, verses one through 14. And we're gonna look at it through maybe a different lens. One of my favorite things to do is look at passages that we're super familiar with and maybe look at it from a different lens, a different angle. How many of you have a nativity set at home? At least one, all right, yep. One of my favorite things to do, I, I love to travel. And as a pastor, I've been able, been blessed to go on a lot of mission trips over the years. And one of my favorite things to do is to go to the local marketplaces of different places around the world, because you can also often find like hand carved goods and nativity sets are one of my favorite things to buy because depending on where you go, uh, you're gonna find different sorts of takes on what the nativity scene uh, looked like. In fact, we have a picture of one. This one is from uh, Italy. It was carved in the 1800s. And I think this nativity set went for like 15 or $1,600. I did not buy that, all right? Like my budget was more for like the $15, $20 one. Um, but this is a very like typical traditional nativity set, one that you might have some, that, something that looks similar to this at home. And so I, I told uh, the early service that uh, this is gonna be the sermon where I ruin your nativity set. So you can, uh, I, you know, like uh, already people after the first service thanking me, I appreciate you ruining uh, our nativity set. That's my goal this morning because one of the things that we're gonna see, and I, I love nativity sets, even if as we're gonna see, there's a lot of, uh, misrepresentations in our nativity sets. We're gonna see this morning that typically what our culture has done is it's given us a version of Christmas uh, that may not be what actually happened, the real version. And so I'm gonna ask you to kind of like take what you think you know about the nativity scene and ask yourself, okay, what does scripture actually say about what went down 
uh, 2,000 years ago. And so we're going to read the Christmas story. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 14. And what we're going to see, we're going to kind of walk through different characters, the characters of Christmas, including one character that is not actually named in this chapter, but his presence was very much known and it would have been felt for every single person that was a part of this story. So Luke chapter two, verses one through 14, we'll start with verse one. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Okay, first off, this is very normal, right? Uh, The census was taken on a regular basis. Some people speculate that Caesar did not trust Herod or his province. And so this was sort of a way to make sure that all the taxes were paid. Very normal. In those days, um, excuse me, this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. So you have Mary, we know she's probably very young, 13, 14, 15 years old, with child and out of wedlock. And of course we know why that was the case. This would have been incredibly stressful by itself. But then all of a sudden Joseph comes up and says, hey, we've got to go down, uh, we've got to go down to Bethlehem. It's like probably a 170 to 200 mile journey. I can just picture Joseph like, hey, don't worry, it's fine. I've cut you a donkey, it's gonna be fine. Like, thank you for that, right? Uh, Being very pregnant, the path would have been narrow and rocky and difficult uh, for anyone to travel. But as much as they didn't like that, the thought of Rome coming after them would have been much worse. And so they make this journey. And then look at verses six and seven. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. This is one of those verses that you read and you're like, you just feel like the warm fuzzies, right? Like you're like, oh yeah, you're just picturing this nice thing. Can we get the uh, nativity set back up, right? Like we we picture um, the nativity set. Can we get the, uh, the, uh, there it is. Yeah, see, we picture it like in a nice little barn like that. And you know, it's just cozy and nice. Here's the problem with that. If you have a freestanding barn-like structure in your nativity set, the reason we know that probably didn't happen is because those didn't exist, right? It's a good reason, right? Um, Barns like that just didn't exist. What Jewish scholars and historians will tell you is that most likely Jesus was born in one of two places. It was either um, underneath a house that was like on the side of a hill or most likely mangers were put into caves. And so if you like picture a small cave, they would cut a groove into the wall of the cave and that would be kind of the trough where you would like lay the food down and the animals would come and eat out of that trough. And these caves were pretty nasty. Uh, They were never cleaned out. They would have manure just caked on the floors. And if you walked into this cave, it would have smelled of smoke and dung. Like I hate to make it be that blunt. not exactly chestnuts roasting on an open fire, is it? You know, you can just, the smells of Christmas. That gives like a new, kind of a new, uh, new, new phrase for the smells of, of Christmas. Um, and I'm still looking for, you know, the manure soot cave nativity set. I haven't found it yet. Somebody did tell me that they do have some nativity sets with caves now because that is much more what most likely what is going on as far as this place 
of the birth for the Savior. Now, let me just ask you a question. If you're the God of the universe and you're about to send your son, the son of God, into the world to be the king, to be Lord over all, to be God incarnate, like how would you do this? Like where would you put this amazing king? Because God had other options. In fact, there were other options like right there in that area. Let me give you another example. And this is some, some context. He could have been born in the Herodian palace. Think about this. In this region, you have a king named Herod. This guy was brutal. He was paranoid. In fact, he was so paranoid, he built multiple palaces that were very similar to each other so that he could, if he thought somebody was after him, he could go from one palace to another palace. A lot of, people, a lot of historians think the Herodian that was next to Beth, it was three miles outside of Bethlehem, he probably would have spent a lot of time in this palace. He was powerful, he was cruel, he was paranoid. He also happens to be not just the richest man in the world at that time, a lot of scholars think he's the richest person to ever live, period. So I want you to think about this. You wanna build a palace out in the middle of the wilderness, but he also, he wanted to be known as like Herod the Great. He wanted to be the, be he wanted to be the best at everything. And so he's like, I want my palace to be on top of a mountain. The problem was it was pretty flat just outside of Bethlehem. And so what do you do when you want a house on top of a mountain so that you're like above everyone else? Well, it's simple. If you're the richest man in the world, you just build a mountain. And that's exactly what he did. If we can look at the next slide, this is um, a picture of the Herodian. And what you need to know is most of that dirt was not there. They literally, in fact, we don't even today know how he did what he did. There are huge blocks that went into the construction of this palace that were um, tons and tons and tons of weight that would have had to been shipped from miles away. In fact, some of the blocks they found, we don't have, have cranes today that can pick these blocks up. That's how big they were. And he was so, he, he was so concerned about his reputation that he didn't even have anybody write anything down of how they did it. So to this day, we don't know how he did what he did. I think we have another slide of a rendering of what the inside could have looked like. I mean, this place was amazing. It had a garden, it had a palace, it had a banquet hall. Also, Herod had this thing for swimming pools. He loved his swimming pools. Problem was, it's in the middle of the desert. So what do you do when you want a swimming pool in your house, but you're in the middle of the desert? Well, you do the same thing that you did with the mountain. Okay, he built a mountain. So now he's gonna redirect water from miles away into this huge swimming pool that I think was like 140 feet long, 10 feet deep. And there was an island in the middle of it so that he could have his conduct his meetings because remember I told you he was paranoid. He could do it in the middle of this swimming pool and that way he could see to make sure that nobody was coming to get him. On top of this, it had a hot bath uh, they've excavated the Herodian and they found a steam room next to an ice bath. I mean, it sounds like one of these luxury fitness centers. This guy was living in luxury in a skyscraper that literally overlooked Bethlehem. And by the way, this king called himself the king of the Jews. So again, let me ask you, if you're God 
and you have, and you're going to introduce the world to the true king of the Jews, and in fact, the king of the world, how are you gonna do that? It could, the contrast could not be more clear. You have something dominating Bethlehem and it's this Herodian palace. And yet we see that God is up to something very different. We see a choice between two different kings and two different kingdoms. Look at verse eight. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. Another verse, like when you think of the shepherds, I don't know what you think of. We've watched the movies and the TV shows and we picture, you know, we picture middle-aged men, right? That are like a little bit rough around the edges, like blue collar. And that piece is right. They were definitely outsiders. They were definitely like lower class, but on their age, um, Jewish historians tell us it would have been very rare for a middle-aged dude to be a shepherd in, that, in those days. This was, in fact, even if you go to Israel today, you can see this today. The, the people that watch over the flocks are usually like kids, like what would be fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth grade kids, boys and girls watching over the fields to make sure that the, uh, the sheep are being safe. So again, I want you to think about this. Again, that kind of changes our nativity set as well. A king is being announced to a heavenly host, by a heavenly host to shepherds who may have been middle school dropouts that are destined for a life of hard labor. And yet this is the group that our God chooses to announce this to, this young group of kids, boys and girls, watching over the flocks. And look what happens next. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with fear. Literally it says, they feared a big fear. Well, of course, right? Like if all of a sudden you're looking up and you see a multitude of angels, you're going to be afraid. But I want you to think about this. All throughout scripture, anytime the glory of God is sensed, what's the first emotion, right? First emotion is not like, oh, this is awesome. I'm coming in the presence with, you know, a supernatural being. It's always one of fear, which is why it makes sense when the angel comforts by saying, and the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. And so the shepherds go from fearing this big fear to look at verse 16, and they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. So they go from fearing this big fear to all of a sudden when they hear the good news, now they are running toward the Messiah. And I want you to see that this is the pattern that we see over and over again in scripture is we see us coming into the presence of a God that is holy, coming into the presence even of an angel and it's the same thing every time we feel the weight of God and it resizes us and we see who we really are in light of who God really is. And then we are sent and we move toward God. And God says, do not be afraid. And this is the God who the shepherds see. This is the God who makes himself known to us. And look at what the angels sing. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. There's that word peace again. Like when we hear the word peace, um, 
in our culture, we, it's just become kind of a, a word that doesn't mean a lot. You know, we, we hear people talking about, let's pray for world peace. And it becomes sort of this nice kind of fuzzy concept. Peace in the Bible is huge. We could do a whole sermon series on just this word peace and what it means. To understand peace though, you have to take a step back and think about what the God of the universe is doing here. When he says he comes to bring peace on this earth, he's coming to fix what we messed up. Think about this, Genesis one and two, we talk about creation and things are right. We talk about shalom, peace. Like in other words, peace in a sense, in the, word, in the sense of the word shalom is that everything works the way that it's supposed to work, right? You plant something, the weeds don't choke it up, it grows and fruit happens. Shalom means like your relationships with your family, they just work, right? There's no sin, like horizontally we're okay. Peace means of course the absence of conflict, but also peace means that we have um, a right relationship with God and the curse comes in and it literally messes everything up. It affects the, the trees that were planted, it affects the plants, it affects every part of the world. So when God says he comes to bring peace, he's coming to fix everything that was messed up. Revelation eleven fifteen says it like this. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever. So when the angels are announcing peace on earth, this is what it's talking about. It's talking about this God that is coming to redeem and to renew the, the, the curse, to overcome the curse that has taken place over all of us, to restore order and shalom to your life and to my life. But I want you to see something here. It doesn't say that everyone gets this peace. Look at the verse again. It says, to those with whom he is pleased. So peace with God is, it's the offer is for everyone, but it's not without distinction. The question then becomes, okay, who is God pleased with? Now we have to be really careful with this verse because you might hear, you might sit there and go, oh man, I knew it. If God isn't pleased with me, then I don't get peace with him, right? This can become kind of a works thing. It can become this thing of like, uh, you know, if somebody asks you, are you gonna go to heaven when you die? You might say, well, you know, I'm really trying. I try to go to church. I don't go as much as I should. I try to give, I try to do good things. You could look at that verse and go there, but that's not what's happening here. The question is, who is God pleased with? Well, just one chapter later in Luke chapter three, verse 22, listen to this, Luke tells us, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove and the voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. It's the same word as in Luke chapter two. God the Father, who is he pleased with? He is supremely pleased with his son. And this means that only those of us who have trusted in his son, who have trusted in Jesus, can have peace with God. So if you don't know Jesus, the hope for our peace with him isn't in how good you are. It's in how good Jesus is. And the promise for us is that if we will bow our knee to the true King, then we get peace with this God. Now, someone here this morning, you're hearing this and you understand that in your head, but you don't really believe that God's grace is for you. I wanna to talk to you for a second. If that's you, if you're like, man, I, I, I hear that the grace of God is big enough for me, but I don't, I don't feel like I, I'm just not that person. I'm not like, 
I'm not like these other people, right? And you don't feel like somehow you're good enough and that you can receive the grace of God. And if you're gonna be honest, you might say like of the two kings, man, I, I don't worship this Jesus. I worship a different king. Not, maybe not Herod, but it's not Jesus either. Maybe your king is money or family or career or sex, or maybe it's just yourself. Maybe you've put yourself on the throne and maybe you're suffering the consequences of your bad decisions and you don't think that you're worthy of the love of God. And I wanna say, like, I get that, I get that. But the Christmas story has good news for you too. Think about this. We've talked about a lot of the characters in the nativity set. We talked about Joseph, we talked about Mary, we've talked about the shepherds. There's one group that we have not talked about and that's because Luke doesn't speak of them. But we talked about it when we talked about in Matthew two a few weeks ago, we typically have three wise men in our nativity sets. And um, that, that's probably wrong for several reasons. First of all, the, the actual word for this and some of your translations have this, it's called the Magi or the Magi. Um, if you listen to the word, it tells you a little bit of what they actually are. Um, they're not kings. They're not just like wise people. The Magi, it's the same word that we get the word magician, right? And th that describes them a little bit better than wise men or with kings. Um, because what you need to know about these wise men is that these guys were about as pagan as you could possibly get. They literally followed the stars and studied them to make important decisions. And uh, so we have horoscopes today, we have astrology. Um, this is obviously way before any telescopes. So these men um, would have studied the stars and they were often very respected. Kings would have invited them into their courts if they were about to make a decision. And they would say, hey, we've looked at the stars and here is what we think is going to happen. So in a sense, they were magicians, not like magic, like I'm gonna pull a rabbit out of a hat, but like truly pagan sorcerers. They believed that the stars predicted the future and would tell you your fate. And yet, what do we see with these magicians? We see a hint of what it means for the radical reach of God's love. Um, the Magi, as pagan as they were, were literally walking illustrations of the reach of God's mercy for people that are on the outside, for people that are considered pagan, for people that um, are, have got it all wrong. And I love this about God. Think about God's mercy in this. He literally uses our idols to lead us to Christ because God used the very thing that these men worshiped, a star to lead them to the Messiah, to the true King. I love that. He literally uses the thing that they worship to lead them to the actual Messiah. Um, God's word, of course, is also there that points them to, in the right place. But the Magi are just steeped in their paganism and their, their worship of the stars, but they know something is up. And so they run to the savior and we know that they worship him with incredible joy. Now, here's kind of how I wanna end this because I think it's also important to realize that as pagan as the Magi were and God uses them and they end up becoming worshipers of God and, and worship him in joy, just a few miles away, you have the religious leaders that they don't, they're not looking at the stars, they're not worshiping the stars. They have the word of God that is also telling them that there is a King of Kings that is gonna be born here, but they don't make that five mile journey to Bethlehem. 
It's the Magi that, and again, we don't know how many there were. We, I know we sing about three. Earliest traditions say there were 12. There could have been a lot more. But these pagan sorcerers, these outsiders, they are the ones that race to the Savior. Whereas the Jewish leaders and the, the religious elite that had all the word of God are the ones that sit there and they don't do anything. You see, it's not just about the knowledge in your head. It's about what's in your heart, the hunger that's in your heart. And I think we are in danger in, in our country of being soaked in religion and in church that we miss out on the heart, this piece of experiencing God and surrendering him, surrendering to him and running after him. I see Christians that want to, we want to sit and we want to soak through like another, like one more Bible study and we want to just sit and sit and sit. And in the process, our hearts become hard. The Christmas story is challenging you to say, which king do you serve? And I know this is a little convicting, but when you look at our culture, like if you were to look at our culture in the Christmas season, which king do you think is most represented by what our culture, how our culture celebrates Christmas. It's about shopping, right? It's about sales, it's about Black Friday. Which king is being celebrated by our culture? Ask us the question, which king do you serve? Do we, sing, do we serve the king that's up on a mountain that says it's all about money and power and pushing people down so that we are lifted up? Or do we serve a king that looks at power incredibly different than Rome did, incredibly different than the empire did? did? Instead of Jesus coming, and he could have done this, he could have come in power, he could have crushed his enemies. What does he do with power? He gives it up to the point of death on a cross. You see, the way he came in a cave and lowly is the way that he went out. Instead of crushing his enemies, he allowed himself to be crushed so that we could have peace with him. So I'm gonna ask you again, which king do you serve? If you don't feel worthy, look at the Magi. Look at the ones that the outsiders, the ones that Jesus comes and says, when you see who I am, you might start out in, in fear, but then you're gonna come in humility and then you're gonna come to surrender and then you're gonna get joy in worshiping the true King. That's my prayer for you this morning is that we don't in the midst of this Christmas season that is all about one king, the wrong king, that we actually come and say, you know what, it's not about that king. My life is about a different kind of king and I'm gonna bow my knee to that king and my life will never be the same. If you've never done that, the invitation is open. You can come in this morning and you can, you can finally get to that point where you say, you know what, I, I can't do it. I've been sitting on the throne. I am my own king and you can bow your knee to the true king, the king of kings, the God that is Emmanuel, the God that is with us. That's my prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the Christmas message that you came in the least likely way. You came in a way that we would never have expected. And yet it showed us so much of who you are, your character. It showed us the way that you um, wanna interact with your creation. And ultimately it showed us your unconditional love for us. And so Father, we confess that 
it is so easy to chase after false kings and false gods and, and false idols. And so, Father, I pray this morning that as we look in our hearts, that we could encounter you and come to a place where we realize who we are and who you are and what you've done for us. And so, Father, I pray that if there's a person here this morning that has never bent their knee to the true King and called you Lord and called you Savior, that today would be the day that you would draw them to yourself with your love, your grace, your mercy. And Father, for all of us, we pray that this week, this Christmas season, um, that we could see what it looks like for us as your followers to live the way that you lived, to pour ourselves out for others in the way that you did for us. You're a good God. We love you. And all of God's people said, amen. Thank you for listening. We trust that God is stirring something special in your heart today. We hope to see you on Sunday very soon. Keep it real. Keep it Jesus.